Hello and welcome to True Crime Medieval, 1,000 Years of People Behaving Badly. I'm Ann Brannan, and I'm your host in Albuquerque. And I'm Michelle Butler in Tuscaloosa. And uh, we're very glad to be talking to you today, although we're not glad out about our subject. Today we're discussing the massacre of the Jews at Clifford's Tower in York, March 16, 1190, which was the feast of uh, Shabbat Haggadol the Sabbath right before Passover. So at that time, the, the Jews had been in England since about 1070 or so. William the Conqueror had brought the Jews in from the continent. And the First Crusade, which marked the beginning of the mass atrocities against the Jews of Europe, started about 30 years after that in 1096. A hundred years after that, the Jews of England lived under, under the protection of the crown. This is the time we're talking about. They're legally vassals of the king. That's their status. Although there had been, anti-Semitism had been growing in England. And in July of 1189, Richard the Lionheart, who was known for his crusading, was invested as King of England at Westminster. Women and Jews were traditionally excluded from the ceremony, but Jewish leaders from England arrived with gifts for the new king. Richard's couriers stripped and flogged them and threw them out. And after that, there was a rumor in London that Richard had ordered the Jews massacred. And so the mobs rose up and the killing spread throughout the city. The Jewish population was attacked by the other Londoners and homes were burnt down. Uh, there was an important scholar killed that was a Jacob of Orléans and some of the Jews were forced to convert. And Richard ordered the execution of the people responsible for the worst of the murders and violence. And he sent out an edict that the Jews of England were to be left alone and you were not supposed to murder them and commit atrocities and steal their stuff. So that's what he ordered. But the edict wasn't much enforced and uh, riots and pogroms against the Jews of England spread out from the city of London to other cities. And Richard was going off on crusade again. And going back to the coronation, among the Jewish leaders were two men from York, Benedict, the wealthiest moneylender in York, and Josias, the leader of the community. And during the riots, they were attacked. Josias survived, but Benedict died in Northampton on his way home. He was wounded mortally, so he died from his injuries. And in early March of 1190, a fire broke out in the city of York, and a mob took that opportunity to spread it, and they set fire to Benedict's house, which was a large, imposing structure. They looted it. They killed his wife and children. They burnt down other Jewish homes and forcibly converted some of the people and the remaining Jews who were, you remember, under the protection of the king, went to the royal castle and sought shelter in the keep, which was wooden. This is important for later. They barricaded themselves in because, you know, they didn't really trust the constable. I don't either. So, and so that was seen as an excuse to an attack. It was sort of a disrespect of royal authority. But they really, they didn't need any excuse, don't you know? The rioters brought siege engines. Uh, there was a vitriolic priest who was urging everybody to kill all the Jews, and he got crushed by a rock, which frankly doesn't bother me, but unfortunately they used it as yet another excuse to, to escalate. And they were being egged on as well. The mob was being egged on by several important York citizens who were in debt to the Jews. This included the main leader was Richard Malabis, who told the Jews that they could leave safely if they agreed to convert. And if you took that offer and left the keep and then were murdered as soon as they left. So the, the Jews who were left inside the keep had no provisions. Uh, 
they could not have survived long. It was very clear that they, you know, the, they were being bombarded. They would, you know, with siege, siege machines and rocks, and they were all going to die. They were all going to be murdered. And so the fathers of the families there killed their wives and children, and then themselves. The last surviving man, we are told, was a renowned scholar from France, Rabbi Yom Tov, who uh, set fire to the keep and then killed himself. And then after that, the riot, still led by Malavis and his cohorts, went to York Minster and burnt the records of debts to Jews. And that was the worst mass atrocity against the Jews in England, and it was one of the most notorious across Europe. The most contemporary record we have is from 20 years later, written by William of Newbury, who says that he wrote it from eyewitness accounts. These witnesses were not Jewish, but Christian citizens of York. Uh, Newbury based his account, um, not just on the eyewitness accounts, but also the structure of it on the history of the Jews at Masada. Uh, he gives, for instance, he gives Rabbi Yom Tov an, an eloquent speech, which he nobody heard. You know, this so this is a literary device. So the literary antecedents are clear. How much of the history was disremembered by the outside witnesses who weren't inside? We don't know. But the historical accuracy in general of uh, Newberry's account is not in question to the best of my knowledge. But the, William of Newberry was horrified by the whole thing. And so I like that, you know, yay. <laughs> but as to what happened after, King Richard was, you know, he didn't like all that, but he was already off on crusade. Nothing really happened. 59 of the leading families of York were fined. Malabis lost some of his property and that was it as far as the consequences. That was it. I think, uh, Michelle, you're going to talk more about kind of like how it kind of doesn't make a big impact on history for a while. Yeah, you're going to talk about that some? Mm -hmm. Yeah. On as to what happens later, a hundred years later in 1290, Edward I expelled all the Jews from England, about 2,000 people. Anti-Semitism in England had been worsening. And when, and when Edward, who was deeply in debt, imposed a hard tax on his knights, he expelled the Jews as a concession to the knights. So um, the Jews of England went, those who survived the journey. We have at least one account of a captain leaving his Jewish passengers on a sandbank to die and then going off with their possessions. The survivors went to Scotland, France, the Netherlands, and Poland. And the Jews were not officially allowed back into England until the 1650s under Oliver Cromwell's protectorate. The mound at the side of the keep has never been fully excavated. There was um, some small excavation in 1990s. They found some burnt timbers, but it's hollowed ground on account of being the grave of martyrs. And there's a 13th century stone round tower there called Clifford's Tower with a, um, with a plaque at the bottom of the hill commemorating the massacre that was put there in 1978. Michelle's going to talk more about that. And in 2019, plans were being made. English Heritage was consulting with Jewish leaders about how best to represent the history there with, a, with honor and respect in a permanent exhibition. And they have planted daffodils on the hill so that with their six petals, they're symbolic of the Star of David and they bloom every spring around the time of the massacre. And Kaddish is held every March 16th, and the mayor of York attends. And so respect and honor is now being paid to all those families who died in March of um, 1190 in York. And on, in 2019, the York Royal Theater was planning a play for the next year. But of course, the next year was COVID. And so I don't think this happened. I haven't done anything about it. 
And by the way, a um, little sideline, the only extant Hebrew manuscript from England from before the expulsion of the Jews, there's one, which is the Valmadonna English Pentateuch, which may well have been part of the plunder taken from the Jews at the York um, Massacre and ended up in the Valmadonna Trust Library and is now at the National Library of Israel. That's the only, only Jewish manuscript from England from before 1290. And now it's in Israel. So that's also, that's good too. I like that. Yes, this is, um, I don't like this story. Um, what have you got, Michelle? What have you got for us? I looked at the history of Clifford's Tower because I like architecture and this was really quite horrifying. So what I can tell you about Clifford's Tower is that the original castle, the original keep was a Mott and Bailey structure, one of two that William the Conqueror built there as he tried to subdue the North um, after the conquest. So in 1068, he built either side of the River Ouse. So he built this, this, um, this is the site of one and the other is on the other side of the river and is eventually that site is incorporated into the city walls as we go along. Um, both of these were destroyed by the Danes in the 1070s because there's still fussing going on with the Vikings. Basically, it's two groups of Vikings fighting with each other as or who's going to control England. York's a northern Viking town, York. Yeah. But they're rebuilt after they're destroyed by the Danes, but still in timber. Um, so it's still a wooden structure this, a century later when the massacre happens. Henry III rebuilds the castle in stone because you, you still have to hold the north. I mean, this is a constant, this is a constant theme throughout the history of royal power in England. Is the north actually part of your sphere of influence or not? The, the northern lords very much resist the idea that they answer to the king. You know, the, the Earl of Northumberland often behaves as if he's a, a monarch in his own right. So Henry III built a very nice castle, but Clifford's Tower is not actually inside of the castle walls. The hillock that was created to build the keep on top of is so huge. It's actually at its feet that the rest of the that the rest of the castle is is built. That's though the only piece of the of your castle that survives. The rest of it is gone at this point. The the buildings that are around. Um, I've seen a few YouTube videos that go up to the top of Clifford's Tower and then pan out over and talk about the rest of York Castle. But the buildings that they're focusing on at that point are 18th century. Ah, oh. those are not part of the the implication from the video is that those are the other remaining pieces of york castle but but no those are much later structures that were built after the rest of york castle was was destroyed in 1684 a fire gutted the tower so all of the wooden structures inside the the walls you know the the floors you know everything you you build inside a stone tower like that in order to make it usable burnt mm. But they didn't stop using it. It was used as a barracks. It was used as a prison. It ends up, for a while, the grounds it's on are part of a private estate. And so it kind of becomes a folly for a while. I had no idea. I had no idea that that was true. Who owned it? Do you know? Isn't that wild? So so it ends up being used used as a folly, which I think is hysterical, right? Because a lot of follies were built in imitation of medieval ruins. But this guy's like, I can do one better. I have real medieval ruins. 
It's as if all of the ruins of Bury St. Edmunds Abbey, they're, they're, they're a folly, you know, which in some ways, actually, I guess that's kind of true. Anyway, we move on, we move on. <laughs> so in the early 20th century, it becomes a government-owned tourist attraction, which is interesting. A lot of places don't come into government control until later than that. But it's in, you know, like the 1930s that it comes into being owned by the government. It just reopened in 2022 after a $5 million pound renovation. Mm. And I wanted to talk about this because the renovation work um, really gets to the question of how do we deal with relics from the past? How do we deal with surviving architecture? And really anything that survives from the past, because in general, we either take the approach of restoration. So we put it back the way it was. Only with a tea shop. Yes, yes. Except we had a tea shop. <laughs> so we tend to do one of two camps, right? Restoration. We put it back the way it was. Or we conserve it. So we, we keep it the way it is, but we keep it from deteriorating further. And, you know, there's pros and cons to both approaches. If you take the restoration camp, uh, an advantage of that is that you show it the way it was. Too many people go to see surviving architecture or clothing or dishes from the past and see them in their kind of worn condition and think that that's how it was, right? Which, which, which results in a bunch of Hollywood castles that are not plastered and whitewashed on the inside. They're just bare stone because that's how you see them now. But nobody was, nobody, no king was living in a structure with bare stone walls. Right. The, the inside of a castle look roughly like the inside of a house does now because you would have plaster and whitewash. It would just look like walls. They painted things all over too. Yes. Gorgeous. Gorgeous. And of course, later you have these beautiful molded plaster ceilings that are just astonishing. The pro to that is showing it the way it was. But of course, the con to it is that once you start restoration, A, you might do it badly. So we've all seen the painting that was ruined. Right. And... We know for sure that one of the histories of, cons of uh, restoration work is that we know for sure that people 100 years from now will be able to do it better than us. Right, because they'll have better technology because that's how it works, yeah. So if you do the restoration work now, you close the door from being able to potentially do better work 50 or 100 years from now. And you also kind of raise questions about how much of this, is it really now a historic artifact if you've done all these things? And you also have destroyed whatever was there to some extent. Yeah. So the conservation approach is you, you keep it as it is, but you keep it from deteriorating further. So this is what they did with, they've t they're taking the conservation approach with Clifford's Tower, but they did build a structure inside the tower, um, a freestanding structure that allows you to get up to the top. And they, they built a wooden platform at the top. So the structure is more accessible, but it is still a preserved ruin. That is so smart. Yeah, that's, it actually is, it actually is a really well done. Um, there's, it's not perfect. Um, it is not a wheelchair accessible site even now. Oh, really? Are they, do they have plans to change that? I don't think so. I think that the decision was made that there's just no way to, to get people up the side of the, the hill. Oh, that's right. It's really quite steep. It's not a matter of getting around inside the tower. It's a matter of getting up to the tower and what you have is a set of steep stairs. Yeah, I think that the decision was made that it's just 
not really feasible to make the site wheelchair accessible without some very serious damage to the the mound. Right, right. Like Machu Picchu. Until this restoration, not the restoration, until this um, conservation work was done, um, the way that the massacre was handled at the site itself was really quite lacking. There was that plaque, which wasn't put in place until 1978. Why 1978? That was finally when the Jewish leaders of the community convinced the local government to commemorate the massacre at the site. Oh, wow. Well, also, I was reading that the relationship of the Jewish community to York has been very vexed, as one would expect. I mean, one of the Jewish leaders of the community was saying it's like going back to Germany. So the Jewish community at York, there were people who came in when Cromwell let the Jews back in, but it hasn't really been a large community. And uh, there have been times in like just basically the synagogue was not even getting used much. So 1978, though, there was enough of a bunch of people that they could. Historically, the more general, so we say, community in York really just sort of sets this aside and wants to pretend like it never happened. But it is never forgotten in Jewish history. No, no. Absolutely. It is well known. So when I say that it kind of got shoved in a corner, that's by the community in York that wants to pretend like this didn't happen because it's an embarrassment to them. It's so awful. And you go to York and I love York. You're going to go to the Minster and you walk all around and and the Protestants didn't destroy a bunch of stuff because really, basically, that was all mostly happening down in Cambridge and Northampton. It's it's really lovely. And, And toffee, it's like the toffee capital of the world. But, you know, this is also piece of what's in York. And when I went there and when I went there in the 90s, it really wasn't part of what was being, you know, like, and here are the things to go see as a tourist in York. This was not one of them, although I certainly went myself. It was, it's a big deal to me. I'm glad that they are really working on making it, on making a respectful and honorable permanent exhibit. This seems like absolutely good. And I like the, I like the thing about the daffodils and I like the Kaddish every year. That's good. And the website for EnglishHeritage.org org does for Clifford's Tower does a very good job of making sure that they are not popping this into the footnotes and trying to pretend like it never happened. Yeah, we'll give a link. We'll give a link. Yeah. It's it's front and center when you go look at Clifford's Tower on their website. So 1978 they put a plaque in. And then there was some point in the 1990s when they discovered some burnt timbers, but they haven't done a lot of excavation and of course that's a um that's the vexed issue. You know, what do you do not what do you do with sites where where you need to respect the dead? It used to be like dig every people dig everything up, dig everything up, and then put it in museums. It was like ghastly, and uh, stuff is now going home. Uh, now we're more careful that the whole dig it up period kind of like bypassed Clifford's Tower because, of course, the dig it up community was not paying attention to this, and so. The other thing that I have is an elegy from the early 13th century. The article is from 1945, and it is a good reminder that even having sources for Jewish history in England is fairly recent. The article starts, let me scroll back to the article at the beginning. The article starts with the statement, it is generally known that the Hebrew sources for the history of the Jews in medieval England are extremely sparse. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. There are there are more sources now, but uh, certainly half a century ago, this was true. The other thing about this article that I see, I understand, I understand intellectually that the massacre is not worse because we know people's names, but it feels worse because we know by name and occupation an awful lot of the people mm. who died in this massacre. That's unusual because we often don't. Yeah, no, we we know there are people known to have died in this who are discussed in earlier records. Oh, that's right. They show up in some of the, not every single one of the debt records got burnt. Uh, so some of them show up there. Yeah, but there's also uh, there's also legal agreements. But also the communication in between the Jews of England and the Jews of the continent must have been pretty strong since we know of two French scholars from uh, two, two French scholars who are uh, murdered in the, the Richard Coronation Massacre and in the York Massacre. I mean, there, there has to have been a lot of back and forth, was there? Yeah, this elegy was written, it's 27 stanzas long, and it's written by Joseph Chartres. Mm. Um, which is close to the Angevin portion of France. So clearly news is making its way over to France fairly quickly. Right. So I, I don't think I'm going to read the entire thing because it's it's kind of a little bit long, but I thought I might read you some of it. Mm-hmm. And is it, can we put the whole thing into the show notes, do you think? Um, I can definitely there, um, provide a link to the article that, that has the translation in it. Yeah, I'd like to hear some of it. Let me... Let me pull this up because I'm old and I can't see. So let me make it a little bit bigger. So I'm going to start reading at uh, stanza 14. They were gathered together to the fortress, together with those with them. But the warden oppressed them and the enemy stood at his right hand. We said, plunder our property. They replied, no, we are come for a feast day. Apparently, by the way, that's a, that's a, morbid um pun because the scholar that you mentioned yom tob mm-hmm. his name sounds like the hebrew word for feast day i see um, and then there's a then there's a stanza in praise of that scholar so then we'll go to the next stanza the holy congregation was altogether like unto him the scholar and stood dumb like a lamb before the shearers the heav- heavenly voice moaned from horeb like a dove woe is me woe is me my servant moses is dead and this is where we start a listing of people known to have died and they're they're identifiable this scholar in earlier in the article goes back and looks at the records and he knows who each of these people were and so we uh, and so we have their names written down by a poet in a Jewish poet in Chartres. Yes, and that allows the the scholar Cecil Roth Cecil Roth to go and look at the records of the Jewish community in York and identify who everybody is. How many names do we have? So Moses is mentioned here in stanza sixteen. We had the scholar above Yom Tob. So that's two. Um, we know that Benedict's brother, the one who was killed. Benedict's brother, Aaron, is that, was, was that his yep. name? So he, he is one who's mentioned. Um, stanza 17 mentions Joseph, and he is identifiable. Stanza 18 mentions Elijah. Elijah. So uh, I was actually kind of surprised by this piece, that, that we know for sure who individuals were. I like it that we know the name of some of the dead. I like 
I, I'm intrigued by that because sometimes when these kind of events happen, um, a real serious effort is is made to conceal all of that to just to make the dead anonymous because it is actually easier to get people to forget things if you can conceal the individuals who are involved and they they go out of their way to destroy the records of the debts but the individuals mentioned are t- are, are mentioned in too many other records to actually go and hunt all of those down and they weren't in, they 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 weren't the rioters weren't in the business of trying to erase all the names and all the um, records that they were in the business of trying to erase the people and the records. Exactly. That's why in the, um, in the Holocaust museum in Washington, DC, there's that, like that kind of like that tower of light that goes up to the, goes up so high up and it has all those pictures of the dead of one village, you know, but it's like all of like, it's like that knowing Knowing specifics helps the rest of the humans to hold in their heads. And we just we just went to see um, a Christmas Carol. Um, there's a wonderful Christmas Carol that's done that we we back where we used to live and we go every year with our kids. And that's one of the things that the the ghost is trying to teach Scrooge that it was easy for you to say if they're going to die, they better do it and decrease decrease the surplus population when you didn't know any any of these people you were condemning to death individually but but see that's actually a piece of this massacre that i find even extra horrifying this isn't an atrocity committed on the way to the crusades where everybody's hyped up and killing strangers they're murdering their neighbors murdering their neighbors uh and it's and it's a big it's like a piece of just this incredible, these atrocities going on across Europe, up across England, and this was simply the worst of them. They're turning on people they know individually. Individually. This, this makes this so much worse for me. It's also interesting to me. It's like we, you know, we have been, we've been looking at uh, the massacres and the atrocities against the Jews in, in our little true crime podcast since uh, since the beginning of this i forget how many times it's discussed. it's a, it is a horrifying subgenre that this can exist you know but this is one of the few times that i remember seeing the names of people who actually went and did the murdering yes that's true too we've got uh Malby's name but we also know the names of um some of the other people we know who the fines were levied against which is interesting to me too, because it is such a it is such a local crime with local people who know each other, and it goes out of York memory once the Jews are gone until until specifically brought back. It's in the history books, but it's a note. It's like it's not part of visiting the toffee capital of of the world. It's very good toffee. I mean, it really is, but still. Yeah, I, I mean, we've talked about this before. A lot of the crimes that we cover, I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for everybody involved because it's mostly rich people killing other rich people to be in charge of the country. Well, you know, you signed up for that when you made these choices. <laughs> you, you did. It's, you know, 
Well, sometimes you sign up for it by just being born royal, which isn't. Yeah, cute. but sometimes you can, you sometimes, we've seen people who decide, you know what, I want nothing to do with this. And they go off and they live on their holdings and they live to a ripe old age. <laughs> no, but this is, it's a very local, the, 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 lo, it, it's very local nature is of such interest to me. Mm. And the fact also that, I mean, even before they put the plaque there, I mean, the, the mound's there. You know, there's this place there in the middle of things. It's so visible. So physically, it never left. It's not like it got built over and there's something on top of it. It's like it's been there all along, physically, that mound. There's a, um, oh, let me see if I can find this movie. Oh, God, don't tell me you found a movie. It's not about... Um... I was sorry that they didn't do the play because I knew you would have liked that. COVID ate the play. I'm so sorry. No, this is something different. It is a movie about the Jewish history, but and it's not specifically or exclusively about York Jewish history, but because of this history, they premiered it in York. Ah, when was that? I am attempting to refind the, I guess I closed it. So now I'm attempting to find it again. It helps if you spell it correctly. This was in 2021. The city of York is called Getting Away with Murder, and it is a Holocaust film. But the city of York hosted the world premiere of this in 2021. It is a feature-length documentary, and that is imp- that is an important register of how the Jewish community remembers York. Yeah, you know, like there are other things like this where it shows up in novels or, you know, movies or operas or whatnot. This doesn't. Mm -hmm. I could not find anything where this shows up. That's why it's one of the reasons I pivoted to looking at the history of Clifford's Tower because I wasn't going to work to try to find um, any kind of historical reflections. A lot of that really is very much about the the local nature of this horrible event. This is York. This is the people of York. They were very badly behaved indeed. Yeah, so no opera. No, there was a play, but COVID ate it. And um, no novels. Nah. Well, it's a good topic for going into the dark of the year, I suppose. So we, um, yeah. Do you have anything else on this? Um, no, this one, there's, there is no humor in this one. Oh, no. Mm-mm. I I am perfectly happy to laugh at already privileged people deciding that they needed to slaughter one another so that one of them could be king and not, you know, the runner up dude. Well, honor, honor and respect and may their memories be a blessing. Yeah, so you have to go. You have to go. York is a wonderful place to go, but you got to go to the, you got to go to Clifford's Tower. Oh, do you want me to tell you about Henry's toilet? Because that actually is kind of interesting. Yes, add that on in. Okay, so this this piece is at least vaguely amusing. Um, Henry the Third rebuilt or rebuilt the tower, and one of the things, or rebuilt York Castle, and one of the things he did was he built a very nice toilet in it. So he must have been planning on spending time there because he made sure that he had a potty worthy of a king. <laughs> Do we know what this looked like? I really want pictures of it. I'm it's not- still there. It's there. You can not only not only do we know what it looked like, it is possible to go see it. 
Um, and you couldn't see it. You could not see it before because the the inside of the tower was empty. But with the with the tum- with the walkways that they've installed, the freestanding walkways, you can get up and see things like Henry the Third's garderobe. I'm gonna I'm gonna um, quote at this point um, from this description of it in a history blog. It was a high tech bathroom in the 13th century, complete with built in toiletries cupboard, a flushing spout that ran water down the lavatory hole. So it was not only a really nice toilet, it had um, a, sp- a spigot set up to flush it. So it would not smell so bad, obviously. Um, in one of the links that you give us, are we going to be able to see this thing? Yes, absolutely. We can. We can. I, as you know, am purely interested in kingly potties. It's one of the things that I look at whenever I go to a castle. <laughs> What does the king's toilet look like? Yeah, I'm not going to use it as the picture for um the episode because that does not bring honor and respect to no, don't do that people murdered at York. However, I would like to be able to see it. Very nice. Uh, yeah, vaguely amusing. The only piece. The next time that we um see y'all, what do 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 do? Anyway, uh, we will be having our Christmas episodes, which this time is going to be the Legend of the Cursed Carolers. So this is, which I believe you put on here, Michelle, was this you? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't remember. <laughs> okay. We stick stuff on the list and we don't know. But and it then is, I forget. Have to do, I gather, with Christmas. and But if it's a legend, I don't know if it's true. But th- that's the deal. I mean, you know. the I believe last year for Christmas we had uh, all the, you know, misbehavings of the boy bishops. I believe that's what we did. That's right. We ended up talking about the horrific plays that the freaking tutors did in order to convince the boy king that it was totally cool to have his uncle murdered. Yeah. Oh I, my God. More people I hate. Um, yes. So we'll do, so maybe the cursed carolers won't make us so annoyed. That'd be great. I'd love that. That'd be good. And perhaps no one will die and it'll just be one of those, not only a legend, but a legend that doesn't involve, you know, murder and mayhem and whatnot. Any rate, yeah, we'll be lucky. That's so. <laughs> this has been true crime medieval, where the crimes are just like they are today, only with less technology. Uh, we can be found on Spotify and Stitcher and Apple Podcasts and all the places where the podcasts are hanging out. Uh, we are at truecrimemedieval.com. True Crime Medieval is all one word, and you can leave comments there and let us know what kind. If you if you've got any medieval crimes that you think we should look at, please let us know. I believe we still have a bunch of a list going, but, you know, we're always finding new ones because it's an entire continent and a thousand years. And really, the humans are so badly behaved so often that really there's a lot of material. So there you are. I'm sure there's more stuff I'm supposed to say, but I'm not remembering it because of the because of the York Massacre. And so that's just how it is. Is there anything else I'm supposed to say? Do you remember? I don't think so. We don't think so. <laughs> Next time we'll talk about carolers, but I'm not a good I'm not a good person to ask right now because I'm in a struggle with my sinuses. <sighs> That's it for us. Bye. Bye. Oh. <laughs> you know. <laughs>
there's really what is it? Are we, what? What? <laughs> We're looking outside and screaming. Yeah. There was that plaque which wasn't put in place until 1978. I'm sorry. What did you say? I actually didn't hear any of that at all. <laughs> she has opinions. It's really funny. Sometimes she decides she has serious opinions. Uh, yeah, I know. She's quiet all the time. Oh, we're pretty wings. Oh, wings, Blanca. Wings. Yeah, I don't know what this is about. Anyway, this is about the 1978 thing. Okay. Yeah, that, I mean, until 1978, the. the... <laughs> <laughs> we'll just wait her out. Yeah. 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 Good luck with that. <laughs> the cockadoo had a lot to say about this, but not as much as about Olaf. She had serious opinions about Olaf. And serious opinions. It's true. No, she's sleeping now. And the but the puppy might well be sleeping, but there was all hell hell, hell broke loose there for a while. <laughs>